Section 27 of Bethlehem by Frederick William Faber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Calvary Before Its Time, Part 4. But we must go somewhat more into detail with the sufferings of the sacred infancy. They may be divided into four classes, its outward penances, its inward penances, its states of life and the peculiar virtues it was called upon to exercise. Its outward penances were its least, yet they form a darksome lot for the first years and helpless tenderness of the infant God. The babe of Bethlehem shed many tears, and they flowed from manifold sources of bitterness deep down within his soul. They came from heart sorrows, such as were portions of his inward penances. But they came also, perhaps, for who shall limit his condescensions from pain and feebleness, from inconveniences and wretchedness, which his extreme sensibility did not exaggerate to him, but enabled him alone of babes born of women to feel in their uttermost reality. Pain which seems the same is in reality not the same to any two sufferers. Its painfulness is varied by the delicacy and susceptibility, by the illness or the soft-heartedness, and even by the momentary circumstances, still more by the inward consciousness of him who suffers. Now not only was there never one whose humanity was so finely fashioned, so unspeakably susceptible as our blessed Lord's, and therefore never one to whom any pain was so intensely painful as the very pain was to him, but also there was never one whose inward feelings, self-consciousness or rather self-possession, made corporal pain so full of agony, we touch on the doctrine of his divine person when we say this, for his self-possession was part of the hypostatic union. Moreover, except to him, and perhaps to our blessed lady, in some measure, yet a measure so far below his as scarcely to resemble it, never was it given to any child to feel the fullness of a child's capacity of pain, or of childhood's peculiar pain for its delicacy and sensitiveness, because the child's powers of mind are dormant, and perhaps two-thirds of bodily pain are due to the intervention of the mind. In our Lord's case, the full use of reason and complete maturity of soul were superadded to the weak impressionableness and delicate frame of childhood. This would give him a peculiar fountain of tears, which without meditation we should be slow to understand. This was his first outward penance. Tears were to Bethlehem what blood was to Calvary. They were the blood of his childhood, which yet was not without shedding of blood itself. In all his penances we must bear in mind what we have said of his tears. Both the immensity of his human science and the union of his human nature with a divine person were sources of suffering, which made the least pain an agony, and his agonies were something too gigantic to be compressed in any words borrowed from the nomenclature of human woe. Tears were his first penance, the second was the endurance of cold, what suffering cold can cause, and how peculiar are its agonies, the annals of Arctic adventure sufficiently testify. Yet none of those brave discoverers and hardy seamen who succumbed on the plains of ice or snow, which might be sea or land for all they knew, ever suffered from cold as the babe of Bethlehem suffered, whether from the cold in the cave or during his precipitate flight across the wilderness. Cold, moreover, was but the representative of other natural powers, his own elements made lashes of themselves to scourge the infant body of their creator. If Calvary was the passion which his reasonable creatures inflicted upon him, 
Bethlehem represents a passion in which his inanimate creatures were the executioners of the baby victim of the world. It is a touching mystery, this subjection of the omnipotent to the feeble stings of his own senseless ministers. His own laws of nature pressed him even to hurting him. He was pinched by the cold and burned by the heat, incommoded by the light and disturbed by the wind, jaded by fatigue and distressed by noise. The seasons rode over him in their course and left the prints of their hooves upon his flesh as they do on ours. To us these are the incommodities of a fallen nature. To him they were mysteries of the incarnation. They were realities at once blessed and dreadful, dreadful from the awful contact between himself and them, blessed because they were divine satisfactions, sources of grace, fountains of indulgences, and sufferings of meriting and atoning power. Poverty has been called by some the sister of Christ, by others his bride. This was his third penance, and it was no doubt one of the penances of his predilection. It would seem as if the circumstances of his infancy had been providentially contrived with a view to bringing in as many of the incidents of poverty as were possible, without seeming to be unnatural. From Nazareth to Bethlehem, from Bethlehem over the wilderness to Egypt, from Egypt to Nazareth again, and from Nazareth to Jerusalem, for the three days during which he begged his bread, the biography of his childhood spreads itself like an ample net to entangle in its wide folds more and more of the varieties and pressures of his beloved poverty. If he was born of a royal maiden, it was of one who was poor and reduced in circumstances. He would not be born at home, but took the occasion of the Roman census to be, as it were, a child of exile and a waif upon his own earth. He would be rejected from the doors of Bethlehem as the least worthy of all the mixed multitude that had crowded thither. He would be born in a cave, a stable, amidst the domestic animals of man's husbandry, he who had come to till the hard earth of souls and make it fertile with his blood, to be himself the ploughman and the bleeding ploughshare also. The poverty of the wilderness, the poverty of the foreign city, the poverty of narrow, straitened toil at Nazareth, all these he essayed, and suffered from them all far more than we can tell. When age grew on Joseph and his infirmities multiplied, the yoke of poverty became yet more galling to the shoulders of his tender foster son. The poverty that pressed on Mary pressed tenfold more heavily on him from the very fact of its having first pressed on her. Poverty is an evangelical perfection. How many have gallantly tried to bear the burden, and have had to lay it down again in sadness and a not unsanctified despair? How many who have borne it to the end have been made saints by the simple burden? How many religious orders attest by their ingenious chronicles how hard it is to keep alive the spirit of truthful poverty, and how weak even vows are found to be in stemming the current of nature which runs so strongly the other way? Never was there a childhood of hardier poverty than our blessed Lord's. It was his inseparable companion, and if he loved its austerities with so singular a love, it was only because they were so singular a cross. Neglect was another of his infant penances, neglect varied by the scarcely more flattering notice of cruel persecution. He loved men with the tenderest love. From eternity it had been his delight that he was one day to be thus among them. He had come, and his sole presence so beautified the earth that it might always have outshone the highest heaven. For was not the beauty of God himself all freshly beautified by the Incarnation? 
Yet, in every sense the words can bear, there was no room for him. Hearts were full. He was unseasonable. The miseries, from which he came to emancipate his brethren, were not felt as miseries by them. His efforts to liberate them were more irksome than the bondage under which they suffered. He was born, and some shepherds came to him, but none of the neighbours seemed to have followed the example. Three kings arrived from afar, and the tyrant of Judea strove to include him in a wholesale massacre, while oblivion and obscurity rapidly gathered over the history of that royal progress from the east. There was safety for him only when the unpeopled sands of the desert were stretched around him, and even there the footprints of the dear men for whom he came to die were terrors and portents to his mother's eyes. For the sacred heart of the incarnate God to be a stranger to any child of Eve was an incomparable sorrow to his philanthropy, his man-lovingness, an affection which belonged to himself in a sense in which no creature can share it, and which is only shadowed by his saints in burning zeal for souls. If it were possible, the word philanthropy, like that of the Incarnation, should be studiously kept sacred for him alone, the man-loving Son of God. Yet he was a stranger in the land of Egypt, and his heart was in captivity, as Israel had been before in the valley of the Nile." When his soul yearned for Jerusalem, there were none to welcome him there. On the contrary, he must turn aside, for they who had power there were sure to wish him ill. Poor child, poor boy, men fell off from him who was the uncreated beauty of heaven, as if there were a charm of evil hung around him, even in his childhood, as if a cane-like brand were on his infant brow. Who shall fathom the deep sorrows of the babe's martyr heart? His bloodshedding in the circumcision was another penance of his infancy, which for many reasons may be regarded as a pattern for the unnecessary mortifications of the saints, if indeed any mortification can be strictly deemed unnecessary even for the most innocent of the sons of men. He needed not the right. He required no ceremonial covenant with God, who was God himself. That flesh needed no consecration which was already united to a divine person, it was a strange, separate, unaccountable bloodshedding, standing, as it seems, in a peculiar relation to the other bloodsheddings, as it was not only no part of the redemption of the world, but was utterly detached from the passion. It did not keep the compact with the Father, which was death, and nothing short of death, so that the drops that were shed were not shed to the saving of souls. Was it the homage of the infancy to the passion? Was it, like the bloody sweat upon Mount Olivet, an outburst of the Sacred Heart's impatience for the plenitude of Calvary? To himself truly it was pain, to his mother's sorrow, to Joseph a heavenly perplexity, to the angels a wonder, to the saints a pattern and a mystery. His weariness was another penance of his infancy. The weariness of the unfatigued Creator is a marvel full of pathos, and to tired souls and fatigue in these days is the normal state of Christian souls, it is full also of consolation. What weariness did he not endure upon his comfortless bed of prickly straw, and in the restraints of his incommodious swaddling clothes? His very helplessness was itself an unending weariness to him, because of the maturity of his reason. Weariness must have been one of the especial sufferings of his flight into Egypt, and also of his return. 
In his flight, the confinement of his bands and the monotony of his posture must have been insufferably irksome, hour after hour and day after day, even though it was the gentle arm of Mary that bore him. Perhaps also the very maturity of his mind may itself have fatigued his infant body. His sleep, too, a region of wonders, was it a real rest? Did it refresh him as our sleep refreshes us? Did it relax the stiffened limb, quiet the beating heart, lull the busy brain, strengthen the weak eyes, and fill the little vase of life, full of new bounding lightsome vigour, as it does with us? His soul lay wide awake the while. His prayer and oblation never ceased. He saw always the olives of Gethsemane. He saw always the pillar and the crown. He saw always the cross against the sky on Calvary. Was his sleep, perchance, only another form of weariness, a shadowy time more haunted by the images of the passion than even his waking hours? All we know is that he allowed himself no joy of any human thing, except what in each case was indispensable to the perfection of his humanity. Fear was another penance of his infancy, and as the suffering of fear is usually proportioned to the giftedness of a man's soul, to our Lord it must have been intolerable agony. His flight into Egypt and his sojourn there were full of terrors, some which we can understand and some which are beyond the reach even of our imagination. It does not seem that we can suppose his science to have exempted him from these impressions when we know how he was ever keeping back from his inferior nature all those succours which could in any way diminish his sufferings. He used his privileges as ingresses to new modes of suffering or to more exquisite degrees of suffering. We should therefore suppose in this matter of fear that, out of the union of a mature reason with feeble infantine susceptibilities, his science would find the means of increasing the pains of fear by enabling him the better to appreciate dangers. We shall find that fear occupied no insignificant place amidst the horrors of his passion, and we should therefore expect to find it in his infancy but we have purposely enumerated it among the outward penances to show that we are dwelling on those painful impressions of flesh and blood which are the products of fear rather than on the inward trouble of soul which the imperfection of science would have caused. Even if he did not fear, he might suffer from the impressions of fear in that mysterious manner in which so many of the infirmities of our nature were made compatible with the hypostatic union. Perhaps even the distressing panics of childhood were not inconsistent with the maturity of his reason. But in all these questions, what theology most imperatively requires of us is that we should leave intact the perfection of his science. Silence has always ranked among the austerest of monastic penances. It requires long proof and many a mark of divine vocation before we dare trust an heroic soul to the observances of a silent order. Silent men are men that hide themselves in God after a most awful fashion. They even withdraw themselves from the admiring reverence of the church by making the processes of their canonization almost impossible. For many months the infant Jesus only broke his silence by inarticulate sounds of pleasure or of pain, perhaps of the latter only. Yet how he must have longed to speak who was so marvellously eloquent, must he not have yearned to give forth light in whom the whole communicative wisdom of the Godhead was comprised? When he was so full to overflowing of beautiful wisdom and ravishing intelligence, must not silence have burned in his heart like a coal of fire? 
Must there not have been something in his being the Father's word which would make him exult in speaking of the Father with his human tongue? When he gazed with speechless jubilee on Mary, did he not long to gladden her with the music of his voice? Did she not look for his voice now, as during the nine months she had looked for the appearing of his face? When he saw Joseph, pale and tired, was he not full, often fain to cheer the heart and revive the drooping spirits of the aged saint by the magic of an articulate word? Yet he refrained. He had put on the disguise of childhood, and by his perfect observation of it, the disguise became a divine reality. Nay, it was a human reality as well, used as a disguise, yet truly no mere disguise itself. Be sure that silence never pressed on saint in calm Carthusian cell, or in garden-girdled hermitage of Camaldoli, as it pressed on the sacred heart of the infant Jesus. We should reckon also as a separate outward penance what enters into all the other penances as an ingredient, namely the extreme delicacy of his body, divinely purposed, expressly fashioned, for keenness of suffering. It may be considered in itself as a distinct suffering apart from the way in which it heightened all his other sufferings. For we must believe him to have been so exquisitely sensitive that many things were torments to him which would not have been torments to us, and many things which are indeed painful to us would become in him pains of quite a different character. The very winds should have blown gently on him, the very raindrops have fallen on him without their weight, the very ground have smoothed itself beneath his little feet. Yet, so far from this, we are to behold omnipotence coming to the succour of incredible love, and holding this frail frame together amidst the tempest of woes within, and barbarities without, that were enough to quench a hundred human lives. Such were the outward penances of the sacred infancy. We pass from them to consider its interior penances. As his bodily penances were nine in number, we may also reckon nine of these. The first was his view of the sins of men. As the soul is to the body, so was the sensitiveness and sympathy of our Lord's soul to the delicacy and susceptibility of his body. Even to us, with our common gift of faith, the word sin is a real terror. It expresses a whole world of darkness. It is the negation of all that is bright, hopeful, desirable or attractive. The possibility of our sinning is a thought to make us tremble. The likelihood of our sinning is our deepest fear, and our actual sin is by far our most real unhappiness. Yet we can scarcely understand the shrinking heavenly-mindedness which caused saints to faint away at the bare mention of the name of sin. Such a fact is an index to us of sublimities of love and of union with God, which are to us little better than terms of mystical theology, respectfully believed in, but out of the range not only of our experience, but of our comprehension also. How far, then, are we from being able to fathom our Lord's horror of sin? The uncreated sanctity of his divine person had communicated to his human soul an unspeakable spotlessness, together with such a tenderness regarding the honour and purity of God, as it is impossible for us to picture to ourselves, except in the most inadequate manner. If we might venture to think of disease as an emblem of a thing so holy, we might say that the wretched and unclean world was to our Lord's shrinking soul what the meridian beam of the sun would be to a wounded eye. It was something intolerable. 
It was a spiritual agony, seemingly unendurable for a moment, yet actually endured his whole life long. If surprise could have found place in the hypostatic union, his soul would have been appalled by the revelations which his science made to him of sin. They were unmerciful, overwhelming revelations. He saw the sins of men in the horror and foulness of their kinds, in the classes of their loathsome varieties, in the manifold uncleanness of their separate characteristics. He saw them in the frightful array of their number, their multiplication, their relapses, their prolific families, their long-enduring, self-procreating consequences. He saw them in their weight, in the weight by which they pressed souls so low, in the weight by which they had almost oppressed the mercy of God under the feet of his justice, in the weight by which they were crushing himself every moment. He saw the sin of sins which enabled him in the passion to expiate all sin, the sin of deicide, the murder of God, the martyrdom of the Creator. Thus he had to bear the weight of his passion twice over, once as the passion, then also as a sin or series of gigantic sins. He had to expiate his own crucifixion. For all this was not a mere vision of a terrified and tormented spectator. He had to take all these ineffable sins into his own heart, and, as it were, violate the inviolate sanctity of his soul by clothing himself in them, making them fit tight to him, and burn into the very sanctuary of his life. Gently and sweetly come the surges of the angelic chorus out of the lofty skies to his ear in the cave, but the vision of all that sin is there. The palm whispers and the sands of the wilderness steam as with golden smoke in the slant rays of the setting sun, but the vision has dogged him there. The lotus is slowly opening its fragrant pitcher to the rising sun upon the tremulous bosom of the Nile, but the vision of sin has fastened on him never to be shaken off till death. He is speaking kind words to the women of Nazareth at the well, and the songs of the vine-dressers are rising gaily in the morning, but the joy of his soul is muffled in this masterful vision of sin, which holds him down and seems as if it would stifle that inward purity, which is the breath of his very being. His soul beheld God. It gazed into the very burning centre of his eternal justice. It came nearer to the fires than ever creature came before, or shall ever come again. The flames of an unspeakable divine indignation leapt out upon it, as if it was their prey, invested it, and seemed to feed upon it as though it were their fuel. It was unconsumed because of the hypostatic union, but the fires would have withered up any created nature if it had not been impregnable and indestructible because of that surpassing union. Nevertheless, it was a created soul, and it must have shrunk inexpressibly from this vision of the justice of God. Here also, as in the case of sin, it was not merely a vision. He was the victim of that justice. It was to prey upon him until it satisfied itself. It was preying upon him at that hour. It could not be evaded. It was his own will, yet was it not on that account less terrible. For such sins, what justice had to be appeased, by such sins what adorable consuming wrath had been holily excited. God's illimitable sanctity was to be the breadth of the expiation he had to make. The very vision of it was like a living thing. It laid hold upon his infant heart, bore it away to inaccessible rocks where neither human help nor human sympathy could come nigh it. 
and there, like a vulture, it fed upon it, taking a pleasure in staining its plumage with the blood, as if it were thereby beautified. What manner of life must his infant heart have lived with such a dreadful guest, with so adorable a terror? His foresight of the passion was another penance of his infancy. Who does not know the pain when a single thought is stronger than the whole mind, and brings the entire life into bondage to itself? It is a pain which cannot be endured for long. Yet the possession of the soul by a single sorrow is even a more intolerable lot. Under such circumstances life is not so much lived as it is worn away or gnawed piecemeal with slow, dull, inextinguishable pain. But there is another lot which is even more dreadful than either of these. It is when some dark thought, some phantom, whether of terror or of guilt, seizes upon life and makes it all its own, shuts the soul up in its own gloomy sounding galleries, and haunts it there with a perpetual malicious ghostly haunting. Yet these are all faint figures of the possession of our Lord's soul by the foresight of his passion. When we muse upon it, we lose ourselves. We would fain disbelieve in its reality. We cannot bear to think that such a life was ever lived on this fair earth of God's. The outward tumult of Calvary is positively a relief after the thought of that insufferable silent woe. If we attempt to follow it into the sweet mysteries of his dear childhood, to accompany it as it runs down, as on electric wires, into all the faculties of his soul, and to watch it mingling with his love of God, of Mary and of men, it becomes not only insupportable but absolutely unthinkable. His foresight of men's ingratitude brings us to another of the sufferings of his childhood, intense but more within the compass of our understanding. We are happy now, because here we seem as if we could get near to him without pity. The tenderness of his sacred heart was perfect in the fullest sense of the word. No one had ever been gifted with affections like his. There has never been a sensitiveness which could be thought of alongside of his. In their strength, in their depth, in their fidelity, in their delicacy, never had human affections been so divinely impassioned. They borrowed strength, as it were, from his science, the purity of their vehemence was from his surpassing sanctity. His human love was a thing by itself, a marvellous chaste fire, a might of vehement tenderness to which there is no similitude in creation. But it was divine also as well as human. No little measure of that yearning and abounding love which the Creator alone can feel was communicated to the affection of his human heart. Hence no love of mother, wife, or sister was ever, for passionate softness, like to his. But it had set itself especially on one created object, the love of men. He craved their love with all the mysterious appetite of the Creator, adding to it the peculiar romance of a human heart, and that new love, half human and half divine, which belonged only to him as our Redeemer. Yet it was in this very one thing that his love was baffled, he saw how very few would love him, how few even of the few who served him would serve him out of love, how coldly they would love who loved at all, and how many who truly loved would fall from that love through the preference of an unworthy love. It was all as clear to him in the days of his childhood as ever the history of the church, as it unrolls itself in successive centuries, could make it. What blight is there upon human happiness worse than that of unrequited love, especially when it is a love which has beautified its own object by its own excess, and so been its own cause and origin, 
and when no knowledge of new unworthiness in the object gives a shelter to the wounded affections in the sense of having been deceived. Yet with such a woe was his infant heart continually pining. There have been heroic hearts among men who have felt the sufferings of others more than they felt their own. But the sacred heart of Jesus, in an unexampled perfection, possessed this heroism. The sufferings of those he loved were continually before him. He saw the desolation of his mother's heart, as her dollars grew daily in the light of Simeon's prophecy to their dread amplitude. He saw the slow martyrdom of dear St. Joseph, whose quiet nature seemed so unfit to suffer, that the sight of his sufferings was a peculiar distress, as when we look on some unnatural cruelty. He saw the fearful austerities of the Baptist, issuing in a bloody martyrdom. He beheld the holy innocence, every one of whose separate pains his infant heart felt more keenly than the sufferers themselves or their wailing mothers. Here again his science furnishes merciless light to his shrinking soul, while his power of light adds intensity to his power of suffering, and to all is superadded the exquisite pain of knowing that of all these sufferings of those he loved, he was himself the cause. His ineffable spouse-like compassion for his church, and his keen sympathy with all her subsequent vicissitudes, was another fountain of bitterness in his infant heart. The vision of countless Christians, who should carry into the endless fires of hell their thousands of frustrated graces, and of divine purposes which human malice had been free to fracture, was also another vision which was always before him. It lay before him that dreadful homeless home of so many souls, as a miserable world of his own disappointed and rejected love. When his childish eyes were smiling with infantine wiles into the eyes of Mary, that vision lay close upon his heart, breathing its fiery breath upon his gentleness. We must add, too, as a distinct penance in itself, the weariful continuity of all these pains, sleeping or waking, clinging to his sensitive heart like the burning garment of Greek mythology, whose potent drugs enabled it to eat into the quick of life with gradual but unsleeping fire. We must remember, too, what the doctrine of his science teaches us, that these fiery visions did not succeed each other with a fearful interchange, which would have a semblance of relief because it was interchange at all, but they were all equally before him at all times, ever present, ever claiming the entire breadth of his attention, ever exhausting the whole depth of his power of suffering, ever illuminated by the whole light of his science, not the least of whose offices it was to be a lifelong instrument of torture. The very forms of life, or states and conditions of his infancy, were forms of penance. He had taken upon himself the form of a servant. The swaddling clothes were his fetters. He was born a subject of the Roman emperor, renouncing his own birthright. His life was one of the most utter helplessness, from his infant weakness to his not coming down from the cross. Throughout it all he was the butt of men, and the spectacle of angels. He put himself at the mercy of the animals and elements. Yet these were but outward shows of the inward bondage in which he was, to the justice of God, to the sins of men, to his own passionate holiness of love, and to their unspeakable ingratitude. He took upon himself also the form of a sinner, 
for he was clothed in flesh like other men, and to be like them was content to have a reputed human father. He underwent the rite of circumcision that he might look still more like a sinner, paying to God a debt which was only due because of sin. The purification of his mother was like a public and ceremonial acknowledgement of his shame. He even allowed himself to be redeemed by doves, as if he, forsooth, needed redemption who came to redeem us all. Toil and pain, fatigue, infirmity and death were all consequences of sin, and to all of them he submitted himself as never man was subject to them before. Yet here also these were but outward signs compared with the form of a sinner which he wore deep down in his soul before the eye of God's exacting jealousy and justice. He took upon himself also the form of a sufferer, or indeed it was a reality rather than a form. All forms with him were realities. Suffering was the condition of his life. It was the unseasonable companion of his childhood. There was no moment when he was free from it. He told St. Catherine of Siena that during his infancy he suffered especially every Friday. For there might be degrees of pain in spite of the steadfastness of his science and the immutability of his love. His science and his love were not the only fountains of suffering which he had within him. As he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, so in the eyes of the Father, and in the terrible realities of his own heart, he was the crucified Jesus even from the days of Bethlehem. His sufferings exceeded all the martyrdoms, even in each single hour of his infant life. He expressed this truth when he appeared to Domenica del Paradiso as a babe all wounded. The three virtues of his passion were also the three virtues of his infancy, and the heroic exercise of them furnished the occasions for the fourth class of the penances of his childhood. These virtues were obedience, humility, and patience. He was obedience with the perfection of obedience to the Eternal Father, to the pagan emperor, to Mary, to Joseph, and to Herod. When we remember who he was and what and how great were the privileges of his human soul, we shall understand how wonderful this virtue of obedience was in him, and how heroic its exercise to his science, which perceived from one point of view its most divine incongruity, and to his love when it came to involve others, as it mostly did, and especially his beloved mother, in its difficulties. To subject Mary to the journey to Bethlehem, to her repulse there, and to the vileness of the cave, was a marvellous act of obedience to the Roman government, the absence of which would have seemed to no one an imperfection. To be turned from his course as an autumnal leaf is wafted aside by a breath of wind, by the miserable Herod or Archelaus, was a strange indignity for the incarnate word. But it came within the requirements of the perfection of his obedience. It would be endless to enter upon his humility. It runs through all the twelve principal mysteries of the infancy. They, one and all, breathe the odour of an inconceivable lowliness. The exercise of humility is always more or less penitential to everyone. But there was a violence in it to the glory-circled soul of Jesus, which beheld God and was beatified already, which gave it a peculiar character in our blessed Lord. His patience, too, was almost more wonderful at Bethlehem than it was at Calvary. In both he was forever holding back those succours with which his divine nature was ready to assist his humanity. In both he was refraining that flood of beatitude which was fain to deluge all the faculties of his soul, 
than to run over through the avenues of his glorified senses. But in Bethlehem he was making the infancy bear the burden of his manhood. His sufferings were as sensible there as on Calvary, and they were more unseasonable, more inopportune, more incommodious, more incongruous at Bethlehem than on Calvary, if we may dare so to speak, not forgetting how incongruous always anything but glory was to the incarnate word, whose sufferings derive their sole congruity from the immensity of his dear love. There is something painful to the tenderness of devotion in this view of our Saviour's infant life. We do not dwell on it with any predilection, but it is part of the solemn truth of the Incarnation. It leads us into depths of doctrine which cannot be otherwise than fruitful to our souls, and it discloses to us some of the inward operations of the hypostatic union which will kindle in us more and more the spirit of adoration. What a vision for Mary must have been this interior life of her heavenly babe. She saw the eternal word, the boundless joy of angels, the uncreated splendor of heaven, the brightness of God's perfections, feeling himself the cursed of God, the outcast of creation, with all the odious weight of the world's impurities upon him, clothed, disguised, and cumbered with the many-folded iniquity of its millions of sinners through all its long thousands of years. She beheld all this laid on the shrinking purity of his immaculate soul. She saw the home of creatures away from home itself, and lost, lost in a sea of sin, and sick, sick as at Gethsemane, sick all his three and thirty years, sick in the days of his dear childhood, when, through his love, all other children are careless, bright, and gay. She saw the teardrops form in the eyes of the Eternal, and she trembled as she saw. Oh, how terrible in its sweetness was the motherhood of Mary! Those tears flowed that we might smile, and have a right to smile, and a cause to smile, and might serve God with our smiles, and love Him with our smiles, and almost do penance with our smiles. For in all the happiest deeds of easiest holiness, the babe of Bethlehem has laid up for us now a virtue to satisfy the vastness of God's justice. Henceforth, after those tears of Bethlehem, if we also weep human tears, they are either tears of sweet gracious sorrow for sin, or gladsome tears from excess of love, or tears from the pleasant pitifulness of pathetic compassion, or even with regard to these tears, privileges, though they be rather than penances, the hour will come when the kind hand of Jesus himself in his Father's house shall wipe them away forever. End of section 27